Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Tuesday, December 19th. Sandra Day O'Connor, as you just heard, was memorialized by... uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, some of the current serving justices, and, of course, by our President Joe Biden. Uh, She has been laying in repose. She doesn't lay in state. That's a different thing um, to be honored. Of course, by now, you are well aware that she was the very first She was the first Supreme Court justice. I met her once a long time ago. Somehow we were at the same cocktail party. And because, of course, it was a pretty decent-sized crowd and I didn't really have a chance to have a lengthy one-on-one chat with her, but um, she was an impressive woman. She was... You could just tell by looking at her, she had, you know, those eyes that just lets you know that someone has a sharp intellect really taking in the room. She uh, was 93 when she died. She had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. So her death was not unexpected. I was trying to remember who had nominated her. It was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan promised to put a woman on the Supreme Court, and he did, and she was the one. I thought um, the Washington Post um, was talking about a little bit about what Chief Justice John Roberts said today at the service. And uh, he said that Sandra Day O'Connor was somebody who wanted to get it done. He said they were discussing a case once, and John Roberts said, he kept saying, well, you know, on the one hand this, on the other hand that, and he said Sandra Day O'Connor looked at him and said, you just have to decide. She ended up being a very pivotal vote on a lot of issues because she considered, as uh, most independent justices do, She considered each case on its own merits, not through some sort of ideological haze. I I strongly suspect that if she had not succumbed to Alzheimer's, she would have been pretty vocal about what is going on with the current Supreme Court, the lack of a code of ethics that means anything, and... um, the apparent willingness of a lot of justices to take a lot of freebies from a lot of really rich people. Anyway, President Biden spoke about Sandra Day O'Connor, as did other people, but I want to share with you some of what Joe Biden said today. Listen to this. Sandra Day O'Connor, the daughter of the American West, was a pioneer in her own right, breaking down the barriers in legal and political worlds, and the nation's consciousness. To her, the Supreme Court was bedrock, the bedrock of America, 
It was a vital, the vital line of defense for the values and the vision of our republic. Devoted not to pursuit of power, for power's sake, but to make real the promise of America. The American promise that holds that we're all created equal and deserve to be treated equally throughout our lives. The high court, she said in her opening statement, and I quote, is a body to which all Americans look for the ultimate protection of their rights. It is the United States Supreme Court that we all turn when we seek that which we want most from our government, equal justice under law, end of quote. Equal justice under law is the the noblest aspiration of humankind and the aspiration of Sandra Day O'Connor, one that she pursued her whole life. Sandra Day O'Connor served on the U.S. Supreme Court from 1981 until 2006. She died at the age of 93 and um, deserves, if anybody does, deserves all of the kind words and speeches that were delivered today. She was remarkable. Okay, other news of this day. Uh, well, sorry about the groan. <laughs> um, we are still looking at the Israeli-Gaza conflict. We are still watching events in Ukraine. We are still watching this ridiculous cause-free impeachment process against Joe Biden continue to rumble forward. We continue to look at all of the Trump supporters who have become defendants in court cases, many of them, many of them, pleading guilty, offering testimony. There have been a lot of questions about whether or not Mark Meadows has been offered immunity, at least in some of the jurisdictions. Um, Donald Trump said he didn't believe that was the case. We shall see. But there was a really, really interesting interview on CNN (laughs) that I want to share with you where the former Georgia lieutenant governor, a man by the name of Jeff Duncan, sat down with Caitlin Collins on CNN. It was a very wide-ranging interview. But one of the people he mentioned was Mark Meadows. You know, Mark Meadows has, just as Donald Trump wants the Supreme Court to decide if he is once and forever immune to prosecution because, you know, he uh, was in the White House. Mark Meadows keeps saying that everything that he's been accused of, everything, especially in the state of Georgia, where there is the election fraud case going on. And Mark Meadows has been telling anybody who'll listen that he was just doing his job. Everything that he did, he did in his capacity as um, the chief of staff. Yeah, um, 
The former Georgia lieutenant governor, who is himself a Republican, Jeff Duncan, doesn't really think that Mark Meadows' take on things is going to hold water. This is part of what Jeff Duncan said in his interview with Caitlin Collins on CNN. Listen to this. Yeah, make no mistake about it. Mark Meadows was not down here on official business. He was down here to meddle in our elections here in Georgia. Uh, and this 36-page opinion highlights every part of that. As Ellie said opening, you know, I feel like Trump and his cohorts are 0 for 500 right now and continuing to, to just be thrown in their face that, you know, they're trying to get off on technicalities. Just one of these individuals would actually produce any proof that would change the narrative. But th- the brutal realities are everybody in Trump's orbit, most of these defendants are waking up realizing that they need to flip from protecting their old boss to protecting their you-know-what. Uh, as we walk into this, because the brutal realities are they're about ready to lose everything. These witnesses or these these co-defendants and these uh, cast of clowns that have been around Donald Trump for years are going to lose their careers and be disbarred. They're going to lose their money. Uh, and quite honestly, they're going to lose their freedom. Some of these folks are going to spend years in jail. And it's painful to watch the Republican Party go through this. I'm being optimistic and calling it a healing process. But we need to wake up now or else it's going to be too late. Uh, Jeff Duncan was also talking about Trump and the Republican Party, and he was surprisingly down on Donald Trump. Donald Trump, of course, in uh, in recent elections, tends to endorse losers. And whether that is because they're just losers in and of themselves or people don't like the fact that uh, Donald Trump likes them, who knows? But um, Jeff Duncan believes that not only will Donald Trump be a winning candidate going forward, he believes that he is going to drag other Republicans running for office down with him. Uh, kind of, kind of bold words. Again, um, Jeff Duncan speaking with Caitlin Collins on CNN. By the way, that Ellie he referred to as Ellie Honig, their, um, their legal analyst. Um, But he also talked with Caitlin Collins about what was going to happen to other Republicans, particularly Republicans in Georgia, because of Donald Trump. Listen to this. This is the game they play. They just double down on stupid. Rudy Giuliani was one part of the of the chorus singing the fake news and the lies. And they just double down on it until we hold them accountable. But all things are going to come to pass in Georgia. Right. I just cannot even remotely fathom that Donald Trump, by the time this plays out and all these truths and half truths and fake news are highlighted across our courtroom screens and, and our and our televisions, that he's going to win Georgia. He's just not. Uh, it's not going to be possible by the time he's, his reputation has continued to be soiled. And therefore, as Republicans, we won't win back what should be the easiest White House to win in decades. Uh, we'll, we'll fumble the ball again and he'll lose like he did the two U.S. Senate seats for us here in Georgia. There you go. Okay. A Republican who has nothing to lose, somebody who's not going to be running for office. Um, Have you noticed how they're the brave ones? Uh, Suddenly, when there are no more elections to win or lose, at that point, at that point, all of a sudden, they seem to see reality the way the rest of us see it. Hmm. Imagine that. Imagine that. Wouldn't it be great if Republicans currently in office were that brave? 
I know. I know. I know. I know. They are still, even, even in his less than optimal state outside of the Republican Party. Remember all these polls you see that show Trump wildly ahead. The Republican Party is not what it used to be. A lot of people who are moderates, true moderates, a lot of people who don't like Donald Trump have abandoned the Republican Party. Either they don't label themselves or they call themselves independents. So the Republican Party as it exists now is pretty hardcore Trump. But anybody who is outside that sphere, I guess once you get outside that bubble, um, everything comes into focus. What do you think? Let's take a look at what's happening here locally. Um, I told you that it was um, yesterday. We believed that during the day the jury was going to start deliberating the Ed Burke case. The longtime Chicago City Council alder person who has been charged with all kinds of crimes, bribery, um, using his position as an alder person to funnel business to his law firm. Well, it did go to the jury. (laughs) And um, after about three hours, they were excused for the evening. Today is their first full day of deliberations. And um, they sent a note to the judge just this morning, about an hour after they all got together. And they wanted a clarification. Um, One of Ed Burke's co-defendants is accused of interstate using interstate commerce to facilitate an unlawful activity. And um, they wanted to understand better what exactly um, that meant. And we know when somebody's doing something which they know is not authorized by law, what does that mean? So um, the judge gave them the instructions and they are back to deliberating. It is Tuesday. The judge has said in this case that if the jury cannot reach a verdict by Friday, that she will send them home until the beginning of January. So I'm going to keep an eye on this and um, anything anything happens that uh, we get word that there is some kind of verdict, we will let you know, though oftentimes The way this works, and this is one thing from covering trials, I know, the jury will send a note to the judge and they will say, we've reached we've reached a verdict. But before that verdict can be read, everybody involved, all the lawyers involved, all the defendants um, involved, they um, they have to be called back to the courtroom um, before before anything can be announced. And most attorneys and most defendants know that when, you know, the, a jury could be imminently returning a verdict, they don't wander too far away. But still, the jury sends a note to the judge. Um, the judge 
reaches out to all the lawyers, the lawyers get in touch with their defendants, and then everybody has to get back to the courtroom before the verdict is read. So even when you get word that there's a verdict, lots of times, you know, in on a good day, you know, maybe in an hour that verdict will be read in court. But it is also possible that... Um, that it will be longer than that. That's why, you know, sometimes we say, oh, there's a verdict in this case, you know, and hopefully in the next hour or two, we'll tell you what it is. It's it's that it's everybody has to everybody has to get their butts back to court um, before the verdict can be read aloud. One other note, um, as we had into the holiday season, you are going to be perhaps Engaging with others more socially than you do on a normal month. We are now being told that um, we are facing a holiday triple threat health-wise. COVID, flu, and this glorious new thing that I never knew existed called RSV, which is some kind of respiratory virus. It isn't quite pneumonia. It's not COVID. It's not the flu. It is its own wonderful thing. There um, has been real concern that the COVID, current COVID mutation might, might be a little bit worse than we've seen in months past. Because even those of us who believe in science and who believe in vaccines, there has been, I don't know, maybe vaccine fatigue. But uh, this newest vaccine that has been tweaked for this newest mutation is not um, being gotten by a lot of people. Less than last time I looked, less than 10 percent of the people who were eligible to get this, have gotten it. You know, I understand, believe me, I understand how we are all utterly tired of COVID. Trust me, you know, you're you're talking to a woman who's had it four times. But one of the things that has taught me is, man, you get you give me a new vaccine and you tell me, Actually, this last COVID vaccine, I uh, booked an appointment with my pharmacy to get the shot <laughs> like a month and a half before it was released because everybody knew that it was that there was a new vaccine, that it was coming out. And um, there was a lot of concern that, it, you know, if you waited until it came out to book your appointment, that there would be so many people, you know. Uh, ahead of you that it would take too long. Well, that has kind of sadly not turned out to be the case. Um, But, you know, hospitals are sort of preparing. They believe that they're going to see an uptick in emergency room visits. If you can get out to get a COVID vaccine, please do. And you should know there is a vaccine for RSV. And if you are like me and you are an older demographic or if you have a baby, then please, please, please get the RSV vaccine. I talked to one person um, a couple of months ago who said that they were going to get the RSV 
vaccine, but then they read about how many babies were getting sick and they didn't want to take a vaccine that would otherwise go to a baby. But you know what? As with COVID and as with the flu shots, there are special shots for those of us uh, 65 and older. With the flu vaccine, we get um, a higher dose of the goodness because we tend to have weaker immune systems. There is a special RSV. Again, this is a respiratory virus. There's a special RSV vaccine that has been created just for, as I like to refer to myself, just for us old farts. So you're not taking a vaccine away that would otherwise go to an infant, okay? And as far as the COVID, there's a new one out. What is the, what's the new the new mutation is something like J1. You know, they really got to give these things some sexy names here. Otherwise, it's going to be too hard for us to remember what they are. So if you haven't had an RSV vaccine, surely by now you've had your flu shot, right? And you need a COVID shot. Talk to your doctor. Talk to your pharmacist. Get it done. Because I don't know about you, but I really don't want to be in the ER for any reason, let alone not being able to breathe. Okay, that would be bad. We would not like that. So get it done. Going to give you um, this. This week, we have been um, scheduling people to talk about 2023 and maybe look forward to 2024 uh, based on, you know, their areas of expertise. Uh, a little bit later today, we're going to be talking with Joe Brancatelli, who runs the business travel newsletter Joe sent me. We're going to talk to him about what's going on now and for the holidays with air travel. And what, if anything, he thinks that we ought to pay attention to or it might happen in the new year. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm going to be playing for you sometime today. I don't know if I'll hold it for when Joe's on or if I'll play it for you sooner. Pete Buttigieg, uh, our Secretary of Transportation, made this like consumer education video. It has some good information. You know, I'll, I'll give you that. But um it, it was it was put out on the on the official social media, but Pete, you gotta spare us the dramatic music. It's like Pete is delivering a religious sermon to us. He's telling us about the flights and what we can expect and what our rights are, and there's this music behind it. That is just completely weird. <laughs> it's something to look forward to today, okay? And then in the 4 o'clock hour, we're going to be talking to our good friend, Ed Yanka of the ACLU. ACLU has, uh, of Illinois has been involved in a surprising number of things here in Illinois in the past year. So we're going to get Ed to give us um, a look back at some of their greatest hits and also talk with us about things that are coming down the line in 2024. 
Let's take a break and get started right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Brett Chase is a Sun-Times reporter, and most of the time, Brett focuses on environmental issues, and we want to talk to him about that. Though occasionally he comes across something else of interest that he reports on. But um, one of the things that um, I want to talk to him about kind of ties in to the whole holiday travel season. But first, Brett, welcome, welcome to the to our little radio show. How are you today? I'm good. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm so glad you're here. Um, I wanted to, you know, I was just talking about holiday travel, and I know that it, this is like the worst segue ever, but you did some environmental reporting at, uh, at of problems going on at O'Hare and Midway. So since uh, I'm desperately trying to, to tie together what I said before and uh, your reporting, let's just start with that. Tell, tell me what you found. Oh, sure. What we got was a little peek behind the curtain that something has been going on for decades. Um, a lot of people probably don't know this. Some, some of you, your reader, I'm sorry, some of your, your uh, listeners, you may have heard of forever chemicals, PFAS. It's a whole, I mean, the ubiquitous chemicals, they're, they're not good for us. They're in almost everything. And they've been like, in everything um, for a while now. I figure somebody my age, I'm probably made of 90% PFAS. It, that's, we all have PFAS in our bodies. I mean, it, it's just, this is the fact. I mean, it's in Teflon, it's in, it's in uh, Stainmaster, it's, uh, you know, so I mean, it's like it's in our clothes, it's in our water, waterproofing products. It's in floss. It's in pizza boxes. I mean, it's, it's it's everywhere. And there's been a you know concerted effort to try to you know reduce this. Maybe someday we will eliminate it. But one thing that maybe a lot of people don't know um, about is the PFAS that was used in firefighting foam, and it was particularly effective at blanketing and just putting out like these intense, um, you know, fuel fires at airports when there's a plane crash, some sort of mishap. And they've been sprayed on our airports for, you know, since the 1970s. And in addition to the, you know, the plane, uh, you know, the, the domestic plane travel, there were training uh, operations at both Midway and O'Hare. We had the, you know, the Army National Guard at Midway uh, that you could still drive by from, from the street, see the armory that's still there, even though the, the, the guard is not, you know, is not training there anymore. And then we had a big air uh, Air Force operation at uh, at O'Hare, and anyway, this stuff we don't know how much, but it, it's it was being used for a long time. And the military, at the direction of Congress, is actually finally trying to get a handle on it. And uh, military investigators have been looking at both airports, trying to see, you know, how much was spilled, how much got outside of the airport. We don't we don't know now. The, the one piece of good news is that you know this is particularly troublesome if it gets into the water supply and of course we we get our water from lake michigan it's piped in um and uh and so it's probably not you know an immediate threat to people who live around these airports at at this point um you know for their drinking water now the water goes in or you know this stuff goes in the sewer goes to the treatment plant goes off from there. The stuff is called forever chemicals because they literally do not break down. 
And they don't get taken out um, of the treatment plant either, do they? No, no, they don't. They they absolutely don't. You know, and I, I had a resident uh, mention to me too. Uh, it lives around Midway. It's like you know, oh my gosh, our basements you know flood with this stuff. You know, it's like I mean, what, we don't know what's you know what's in this water. You know, I mean, bad enough to have your your basement flooded, right? You know, but uh, you know there might be this this chemical that's not you know that's not good for you. So we're I started this by saying this like it's a you know peek behind the curtain because boy the, the city aviation folks are just really tight-lipped about this stuff. They do not want to talk about this. I mean, I mean, they were just, they tried to ignore my questions over and over again. And finally I got a response from them. You know, I, you know, I just boy is trying to get to the bottom of this. Uh, the firefighter, I'm sorry, the fire department was a, a little bit more help, still too many questions. Um, so there'll be, uh, there'll be more to say on this. Um, has anybody tested uh, any of the residential water around Midway? Well, the water again. Your, our, our drinking water um, is going to be okay, right? I mean, unless you have a well, and there's probably not a lot of wells now. You know, back at O'Hare. So, I what mean, you're saying were, is the drink, you know, the water coming in through the pipelines for the residential areas. It's not the what's in the groundwater doesn't affect it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, now, I mean, if there was at one point a well somewhere around O'Hare, because, you know, O'Hare used to be all country, right? You know, I mean, I we'd have to go, we can't, we can't go back to the 1970s and say what was around there. Um, you know, so, you know, past contamination, hard to say. Right now, we don't think, you know, yeah, I mean, there's, there's not, there's just, there aren't wells, there aren't like private wells around Midway Airport. Um, you know, there, there could be, you know, water, you know, standing in people's yards or, you know, like I said, basements. Um, we just, we don't know. And, and, and there'll be more testing. There's going to be more um, analysis by, uh, you know, both the Air Force and the, and the Army National Guard. Department of Defense has ordered that, you know, military test all across the country. So this is happening. And, you know, there are parts of Illinois where there, there may be more of a concern. I was just, you know, focused on uh, Chicago um, and, and, and uh, what, you know, the facts here. Be, before we move on from this, Brett, did I, in that list of things that uh, have been found to have PFAS, did I hear you say pizza boxes? Oh, yeah. The pizza boxes would help with the nonstick, you know, part of the uh, – you know, I, I mean, I, it's, it's hard to, to keep track of this. Like who's, you know, who's giving you a, a, an environmentally friendly pizza box? Who isn't? I mean, I've done a little, you know, I try to keep up on like, you know, floss and things like that. I don't want my kids, you know, using PFOS floss. I mean, we, we, a couple of years ago, I ditched all our Teflon pans. You know, we, 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 um, you try to buy, you know, furniture that's not, uh, you know, treated with this stuff. You know, I mean, it's very, it was very good for like waterproofing, stain proofing. Mm-hmm. Nonstick. Oh, oh. The other one was uh, was um, uh, uh, micro microwave popcorn. Um, I mean, that was yeah. I would never do microwave popcorn again. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of uh, issues with, uh, with, with when you when of, you, you buy know. a product. Let's say, for example, dental floss. Is there any way to know whether or not a product you're buying has PFAS or not? You're going to have to like research it. You're going to have to find like an environmental organization, like maybe um, I don't know. I, I want to say like environmental working group, uh, national organizations like that have done some. Um, you know, you just got to kind of search around and see if there's a reputable organization that 
that has a list of these. They, they are out there because I've, I've looked at some of these lists myself. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, it's, I guess the good news is that residential water is somewhat safe. The bad news is that um, the groundwater might have more than its a fair share of PFAS around O'Hare and, and Midway, if anybody out there is, um, is uh, still using well water. Um, I also wanted to, I don't think I've talked to you since the Environmental Protection Agency came out and made a big statement about lead pipes that carry water. What if, what's your uh, most recent reporting on that? Well, um, it's a, it's a mandate across the country. You know, ten ten years we're going to get rid of this these these pipes, these harmful pipes. You know, uh, Chicago mm-hmm. gets a pass. I mean, I mean, Chicago is going to take forty plus years um, because we have more of these lead service lines than any other city in the in the country. I mean, by far, more than four hundred thousand of them, because we were you know we were putting these lead lines in our homes. Well, not us, but, you know, and the plumbers city code, you know, said, you know, this is the way we're going to do it, you know, all the way to the 1980s. You know, I mean, it's like, uh, even though there was so much um, known about the dangers of lead, this was still happening. And of course, you know, you look at our housing stock around the, the city and it's, you know, it's quite old. I mean, I, you know, I live in an older home. A lot of people do. So, you know, unless there's been a, you know, complete, you know, gut rehab that also took out those lead service lines, there's a good chance a lot of us, you know, have these, these pipes in our, our homes. So it's, uh, it's, it's been very slow going, you know, I mean, Mayor Lightfoot had, uh, had, you know, you know, said that she was going to tackle the problem. She had a very modest proposal and she couldn't, uh, she couldn't hit those numbers. One of the big issues in Chicago is just you know, how do you pay for it? You know, I mean, they're not going to, I mean, you can't really raise taxes. I mean, well, didn't could, they get uh, you know, like? Well, I don't know. I know this is a drop in the bucket. Three uh, hundred some million from the federal government. Yeah. I mean, it's a start. Right, right. It's but, a start. Yeah. And no, why does but it seem like, that it, other? When I've I've been reading about the estimates of what it's going to cost per house, and those estimates uh-huh. seem awfully high. I mean, you know, it maybe is. the cost of living in Detroit or Denver. Or Newark, New Jersey is just that much lower, but it seems like other cities can do it cheaper. The city water department will tell you that, you know, it's very you know, complex here, that I don't know, we have a lot of stuff going on under underground. Um, they haven't yet tried, like, entire blocks at a time. Like, that's when you look at, like, cities like Newark, which was actually under an order to do their re- re- replacements, but, you know, Newark would just do an entire block at a time. It's a lot more cost effective it's a lot more efficient and you know we're i it's it's like chicago's still trying to figure it out you know it's like even getting you know into the you know so we're talking about like this is the 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 connector you know between your pipes in your house and the outside water main so Mm -hmm. you know there's there's ways to go underground and and get to this thing and try to be you know less invasive than just like you know tearing up the entire street um, you know, again, the city is still trying to tr- figure this out, but they do have a high uh, price per, um, uh, you know, per replacement. You know, so that you know, you're absolutely right that the you know, 336 million um, is is something, but it's it was only expected to help replace 30,000 
and and that's over, you know, and and that's already kind of started. So I mean, we got four hundred nine thousand to replace. I mean, you can kind of, you know, do the math. It's going to take a long time to, uh, you know, to to get this done. Yeah, too long. Um, but I guess any progress is better than no progress. Uh, Brett, I also wanted to ask you about, you know, I didn't do a great deal of uh, of talking about this here on this show, but the um, Brighton Park site for these migrant tents, you know, supposedly the city of Chicago said they did testing, um, that, you know, that with us with some remediation, the site would be safe and they were going to go ahead. And suddenly the governor's office steps in and says, no. If I if I understood them correctly, they said, like, you didn't do enough testing. You didn't do the right kind of testing. We think this is a bad idea and we're going to pull the plug on this. So explain to me what what happened there. So, yeah, it's a little complicated that um, the, the site was leased by the city. It's an industrial site. It was never you know, it was it was never approved for, you know, human use so but the the tents the construction of those tents was actually being paid for by the state so you know the governor uh, you know expected the city to provide a detailed environmental report which you know the city forked over you know a couple of weeks it was a couple of weeks ago it was a friday night it was like um yeah and it was a you know it was a it was a long report and you know it as expected i mean I had reported this beforehand. We, we probably were going to see some toxic metals. You know, this this was um, you know a site that had a lot of dirty you know stuff on it for many many years. And um, in, in in the governor's office said um, after reviewing you know the Illinois EPA and I guess really it was the Illinois EPA that, that made the call, but that's under the governor governor's control. Obviously, said that you know it's like. This is insufficient sampling, and 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 the the remediation plan doesn't meet the state cleanup standards for residential use. And we're just like, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna go forward with this. And so all of a sudden, we're not really talking about we're not talking about these these uh, these tent cities anymore. Because um, there was another one that was being considered for the like Morgan Park at 100. I think it was 115th and Halstead. Now there's that's like a paved lot with an old jewel and some other businesses, and, and just yesterday the city hall said that there were some environmental issues there too, but it's it's almost a moot point because the city had already put that on on hold. You know, basically they paused that. It didn't look like that was was going to be the you know this whole idea of these these giant tents, winterized tents, seemed to be like you know on ice anyway. So you know there's. And, and I'm not following every angle of this because there's a whole more serious issue right now with the death of a child in Pilsen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not I'm not writing about that, but you know, definitely go to SunTimes.com to, to read some of the current coverage of that issue. Um, and uh, yeah, it's you know, I, it, it, I think a lot of people have, have looked at this, and well, I mean, it, it was it, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, it's a, it's a real challenge. All these you know, all these folks that are being bust in, and you know. What do you do? So, um, but the tent cities seem to be, uh, you know, that idea seems to be dead for the moment. Well, what I found confusing is that there didn't seem to be an accepted standard. I mean, the city was saying we did testing and um, everything we found is either 
um, something we can use remediation to fix or it's within acceptable levels. And it seemed like the state of Illinois was saying, saying, no, no, um, you didn't do enough testing. You didn't do the right kind of testing. Is, so I take it there's no hard and fast standard of if you're going to analyze something like this for human habitation, these are the tests you do. These are the way you do it. Well, I would I, I would I would put some faith in the Illinois Environmental Protection Agency, you know, which is probably drawing I, I would I would say was drawing, you know, from guidelines set out by US EPA, which is sort of the law of land when you talk about environment. Um, but but certainly no, you know, Illinois Environmental Protection Agency has its standards. I mean the city of Chicago used a private contractor and you know in terms of how how much could have been um, done for further remediation, I mean, maybe it could have been, but it just it ended up being canceled. The, the, mm-hmm. the governor said it's you know too, too too much. He's like, look, we got these concerns. Why does it have to be here? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's let's look at our other options. And so you know, there's there's these other you know shelters. I mean, the I think the archdiocese is talking to. Um, the state about, you know, potential lease opportunities. I mean, it's like, you know, it's just not going to be this big, these big tent camps um, Uh as as far as we can tell right now. So. And um, before, uh, before we uh, go any further, I, uh, you know, I know that you are an environmental reporter and you are uh, particularly knowledgeable about those issues. But you recently reported on something else that you say you just happened to stumble across. Tell uh, tell my audience about that. Well, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's it it a little bit more than just stumbling across it. It, it just that um, it, it kind of dovetailed with the work that I was doing on um, um a, compl- a civil rights complaint to HUD. I think I think we've talked about it on the show. Uh, there was the General Irons <laughs> move to the southeast side, and that and that raised concerns. And, and some community organizations filed a complaint to to, to HUD. And last year, uh, HUD finished an investigation into these civil rights complaints that like, you know, you're moving polluting industries from, you know, white wealthy neighborhoods into, you know, communities of color, low income communities of color. That is not right. That's, you know, that's a violation of, you know, their rights. Fix it. On her way out the door, Mayor Lightfoot, um, you know, signed a binding agreement with housing and urban development, you know, what we also often call HUD. So as I was reporting on this, I, I knew that there was this older HUD case uh, that had been brought also alleging civil rights violations by the city of Chicago for this like long practice of aldermanic prerogative. This is a, you know, this is a thing here in Chicago, which basically for the last century has given aldermen uh, this veto power to stop developments in their own wards. And, Unfortunately, what's been happening, according to the complainants, and now HUD seems to agree, is that it was also keeping low-income, uh, affordable housing, you know, probably a lot of, you know, black and brown residents out of white wards, like on the northwest side, um, and out of, you know, communities like Edison Park and around 
O'Hare and uh, and elsewhere. And this is a problem. And HUD is now not come to a final decision, but has sent a letter to the city saying, you know, we, we, we have some concerns here. We say we see that, like, you know, you know, affordable housing is rarely or ever, you know, constructed in these majority white neighborhoods and these wards. And they have hardly any affordable housing in them to begin with. So what's going on? Let's talk about it. And the city, I, I, you know, I caught wind that there was a letter sent to the city. And, um, you know, it, it felt like the, the legal department, the law department of the city was just sitting on it. And I was able to get it through open records requests. And um, I attached that complaint to my to my story. Um, so all the all the news, all the follow ups you saw was, you know, other media taking that that letter from, you know, I was the only one who had that letter. Um, but uh, it's it's it, it, it it's now out in the open that um, HUD is asking Chicago to come to the table on another serious civil rights violation or potential violation, I should say. Um, and they have a lot of leverage, too, by the way. HUD, HUD gives the city of Chicago many, many, many millions of dollars, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Well, do you think a lot of this is sort of the whole NIMBY? Yeah, I think the idea of affordable housing is great, but not in my neighborhood, please. Yeah, the the complaint um, that was filed five years ago, just over five years ago now, uh, specifically says that, that there's these things called zoning advisory councils, you know, so these councils, you know, that they – and they can – they the older persons can, you know, actually – you know, affect whether that housing, you know, can even be zoned for like multifamily, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's there's a lot of tactics that are being uh, used to what what appears to be, you know, keeping affordable housing out of, you know, different parts of the city. And um, it's, um, you know, it's been happening for a long time. And HUD is saying, Chicago, fix it just like they did with the uh the environmental racism um concerns uh you know which is is being addressed right now brett as we are looking at the end of 2023 and forward to 2024 as far as um health issues public health environmental issues pollution are there any topics any stories that we should be keeping an eye on in this next year? Anything that you think is going to be something that you're going to want to follow up on? Oh, for sure. I mean, we got to, we got to keep an eye on this, um, these lead pipes because I mean, our, you know, our kids, you know, can't be drinking you know lead in their water. I mean, it's, it's going to destroy their brains. Um, you know, this, this issue of, of zoning and, you know, land use, it's going to be interesting to see how this is actually legislated, you know, because part of the binding agreement, you know, with the federal government to prevent, you know, polluting industries to keep going to the same places over and over again is um, this idea that there's going to be a, a, a new law in, in Chicago. There's going to be some sort of ordinance that recognizes that you can't just, you know, put, you know, a polluting business or even I, I, I 
it's it's yet to be written, but but even the the the, the idea of you know adding lots and lots and lots of of diesel truck traffic. Truck traffic is one of the biggest you know culprits in terms of harming the health of Chicagoans and also contributing to um, greenhouse gases. Um, so we have a lot of warehouses on the southwest side of Chicago, and there's a lot of demand because we all order, you know, things from Amazon mm-hmm. and elsewhere. And uh, we need those, like, you know, what they call last mile delivery, um, you know, warehouses. And so there's just a ton of traffic and a lot of um, folks have been saying, you know, let's see, enough. You know, there's been pressure on Governor Pritzker to speed up the uh, adoption and the you know transition to electric vehicles. You know, maybe even some policies that would, um, you know, cut down a number of diesel trucks. Diesel diesel fuel is just horrible for, you know, our health. Well, I was um, reading, it's, it's, Brett, you know, that that before we ever really have self-driving cars, the first place we were likely to see that technology was uh, self-driving trucks. So as mm-hmm. long as we're making them self-driving, can we make them electric, too? Yeah, I mean, or maybe put I mean, solar panels are, on that on the on the tops of them. I don't, yeah, I don't, you wouldn't need. I don't know if that would work. I don't know if we've done that, but you can certainly. I mean, the, the the thing with the trucks is that you know, like, how long could they go on you know, uh, you know, electricity? And and they have gotten better. I mean, they you know the, the you know the uh, um, you know the whole technology is is has been improved quite a bit. But you know, all these things need policy, right? You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's the same. The, the, the same, the same, you know, outcome is like phasing out coal plants, right? It needs policy to, you know, you know, to, to boost up these renewables, which, you know, we're seeing. That, I mean, it's another thing to, to look for next year is, you know, the, you know, the increase of solar and and wind, probably more so even solar because there's a lot more room to grow on solar in Illinois um, as we phase out the natural gas and the and the um, yeah, you know, the coal plants, but um, you know, then we got to we got to really address the uh, uh, the the issue of, of gas and diesel vehicles because that is what's really uh, you know killing the planet and causing you know wildfires in Canada that smoke us out in the summer and you know it's like it's um, you know there's the climate crisis and then there's also just the the health issues. On different parts of the city, where you know high asthma rates and respiratory yeah. issues, you know children, you know being taken to the hospital, you know emergency rooms because of their you know their asthma. So there's a lot of work to be done on the environment, and um, you know you know we're going to continue to you know see extreme weather, and we're going to you know need to figure out how to you know mitigate you know flooding around the city and the suburbs, and um, yeah, there's there's. So there's a lot. There's a lot we're going to be looking at in 2024. Yeah, yeah. There's no. There's no shortage. There's no shortage, mm-hmm. and you know, then you know, it'll be it'll be interesting to watch this. Um, you know, this new administration too, because you know, they have a, a lot of um, they have a lot of opportunities. You know, to to address you know some of these problems, but they have a lot of challenges as well. So. Well, Brett, we will be talking in 2024 as you continue to cover and report on these things. And thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I enjoy it. I look forward to talking this morning. Brett Chase uh, reports on environmental protection, pollution, public health. Uh, He used to be with the BGA. Now he is with 
the Sun-Times. We're going to take a break for news. We'll be back with more after this. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. WCPT 820. As we wrap up our last few programs of 2023, what better person to talk to to look back on the year that was other than Tony Fitzpatrick? Chicago, former radio personality, artist, actor, poet, and uh, currently recuperating. You know those respiratory illnesses I was telling you about at the beginning of the show? Well, Tony is just finally coming out the other end of it, and uh, he can speak firsthand to the importance of um, being healthy. Tony, literally, uh, you know, I'm not saying this just as a pro forma a statement of politeness, but truly, how are you? I'm OK. Um, I uh, my son is currently driving me back to my studio. I had my IV treatment for sepsis. I had the triple play of covid pneumonia and sepsis. And they are all they are all related. Um, and thankfully, you know what? I got the best care ever from St. Mary and Elizabeth. Um, the doctors and the nurses there, you, you would not be in better hands than those folks. They took amazing care of me and I'm just, I'm very lucky. Well, you, um, you are very lucky because I got to tell you, um, you know, every time something happens, you know, like I, I told Ray last week, I said, oh, you know, oh, reached out to Tony about being on the show. And Ray looks at me, goes, oh, he's in the hospital. And I'm like, what? <laughs> You're so, always the last to know, Joan. Apparently um, so. Nobody tells me anything. Least of all you, Mr. Fitzpatrick. Thank goodness Ray's attached to you on social media. Or I'd never know anything. Um, so. Well, Last week I was I was at home, and I got the chills really bad. And um, I told my son, you know, can you turn the heat up? And he goes, seventy six. What's going on? You know. And he looked at me and he thought perhaps I was having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And uh, him and uh, Michelle got me to the emergency room, and my blood pressure was all over the place just because. Of, uh, you know, the new COVID. Boy, the new COVID is a nasty. It's like extra crispy or something. Um, <laughs> but it's it truly awful. Um, and, you know, luckily they, they got a handle on it right away. They took excellent care of me. Um, and uh, then, you know, um, I, they realized I had pneumonia as well. So they gave me an antibiotic course for that. And then they found some bacterium lurking around in my blood. <laughs> so it was it was triple play. It was like somebody was trying to kill me, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, you but, know, it's uh, it's funny. After I finished uh, after I finished up chemo, um, 
I had um, in one of my physical checkups and that I had some weird results. And doctors who are usually, you know, they, they don't hear zebras when they hear hoofbeats, they hear horses. And my doctor, yeah. this specialist, was like, zebras, zebras everywhere. And Absolutely. afterwards, I talked to my internist about it, and she said, you are what we refer to as a hot potato. Once something really bad has happened to you, from that point on, anytime you take a test or have a bad result, instead of going to the least of the possible problems, every doctor who looks at you is now going to jump to the worst of all possible problems. She said, for the rest of your life, you're going to be a hot potato. And Tony, welcome to the hot potato club. My fellow Spud. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I, I, at first, my instinct is never go to the hospital. And my son said, you know, you're, you're really in Disneyland. You really have to go to the emergency room. And uh, and uh, him and uh, him and Michelle have taken great care of me, as well as um, the doctors and nurses. And uh, mm-hmm. it, was, it was a, boy, it was a week, you know. Um but I feel better. I'm back in my studio. I'm working easy days this week. And I just went, you know, I went and got my IV uh, uh, drugs for, uh, for sepsis. And it's in the same place where people go for, um, for chemo, you know. So there are a lot of folks uh, um, suffering, you know, and, and really not feeling well. Um, yep. But yeah, but I, I felt really, uh, really fortunate, and you know, fortunate for the doctors, um, uh, Doctor Arias and Doctor Yamario, and um, I just got the best care ever. Um, That's the, good. The, yeah, the the nurses and 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 techs and specialists at uh, Saint Mary and Elizabeth just, you know, this is the second time they've saved my life. So. Um, I, you know, I owe it all to them. Um, yeah. But, and you're, you know, uh, you make a good point and something that, um, that people should remember, you know, I mean, yes, it's the holiday season and that's great. And we're going to get together with friends and family and that's great. Yeah. <clears throat> but, um, this time of year, not, not everybody is celebrating, you know, there's, um, no, absolutely. I don't know uh, where, you know, if you've ever had to go for any of your treatments to Northwestern, but um, there's one building in the Northwestern complex. It's not the main hospital. It's one of the other buildings. And I refer to it as the building where everyone cries. (laughs) Nobody goes there to get good news. My My older sister was a nurse at uh, Northwestern for 40 years, so Mm. I know building for which you speak. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. uh, I, you know, I mean, the, in the week I was in, there's, you know, there's still all kinds of, uh, pain and agony with, with the migrants. Uh, yeah, it, it, you know, it, we're hosting in our city. Um, we lost the great, uh, amazing sculptor Richard Hunt, who I yes. knew for 35 years. Tell me about him. Uh, I was aware of him was, just because he was famous, but not aware of him in any kind of personal sense. Uh, for those of our listeners, um, I haven't mentioned this. Um, one of, the, I think it was that he was the first African American 
artist to get a retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in, uh, at in New York. 35. At the age of 35 in 1971, uh, Richard Hunt uh, just possessed an astonishing gift. This is a man who could take 30 tons of steel and make it look as if it were about to take flight. Mm. Um, a great much of his work uh, referenced birds and flight and 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 ascension. Um, uh, he, he was he also, you know, and he never said anything about it out loud. He mentored so many young artists. Really, you know, so in Chicago, um, always had a kind word for everyone. He was. Uh, Absolutely the real deal. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, went to his studio every single day. I mean, very late into this year. Um, and, you know, he was 88 years old. He has what can only be described as a protein body of work. And, um, boy, I'm, uh, I'm going to miss him. He, he had a great long life. But uh, um, r- r- believe me, Richard Hunt will cast. A much longer shadow in uh, in death than perhaps he did in life. But um, he he was an amazing artist. I mean, you know, when every young artist uh, asks me, "Who should I emulate? Who whose uh, ethos makes the most sense to you?" It's like Richard Hunt. Hmm. You know, he his career in his studio, and um, and what a fascinating place it was. If you ever lucky enough to go there. It was just all kinds of work, uh, works in progress, all kinds of um, commissions and things um, working. And, and, you know, he just never ceased to be busy. And, um, you know, I just, uh, I'm going to miss him immensely. Did Um, he do um, as well as, you know, I knew you said he was a sculptor. Did he do public sculpture? Oh God, nothing, you know, nothing but for the oh. longest time. He's probably got, you know, a hundred pieces around the city of Chicago. I mean, he did that, you know, he did a huge one for the Obama Museum, which is going to go up oh. uh, on the south. Um, and, uh, and he, uh, he was just absolutely, uh, you know, I mean, believe me, when you wanted a great public sculpture and anything that implied movement and flight and uh, and just the, you know, the liquidity of life, you know, you, you went and got uh, a Richard Hunt piece. I mean, he was great. Wow. And, you know, you and I have talked about um, in the era in which, you know, you came along as an artist and we've talked about the difficulties that women have being recognized and um, African-Americans have being recognized. And he really, I mean, I am not all that familiar with with artists, but I knew the name. You know, I mean, what an amazing accomplishment in, an, in a time where he had so many strikes against him. And yet... This was who he was. This is what he wanted to do. And he did it. And he did it better than anybody. His vision went out. You know, I have a fascinating story about how I met Richard Hunt. I met him at the Guild Bookstore on Lincoln Avenue in 1986. 
Uh, one day I spent a day being a bodyguard for James Baldwin, the writer. Um, me and a bunch of galoots that I hung out with in Villa Park, Richard Bray called in the local, like, neo-Nazi idiots were, you know, threatening him because James Baldwin was uh, coming to the store. And, and James, of course, was, you know, uh, uh, black and gay. And um, they started making noise about it. So Richard called me and said, do you know any guys? And I said, yeah, I know some guys. Um, <laughs> Tony knows so some guys. I brought, I brought a truckload of them, and um, and the morons never showed up. But uh, in the meantime, these, these these like five or six working class, you know, construction guys I brought were fascinated by James Baldwin. And that same day, um, Gwendolyn Brooks came to get a book signed. Leon Forrest, the great African-American novelist, um, uh, uh, Cliff Kelly, Richard Hunt. You know, I, I knew who he was back then. I mean, it was, he was a big deal to me. And um, he could not have been kinder. And every time I ran into him, he was the warmest and most gracious man you ever met. Wow. And that's not always the case when somebody is a successful artist or writer. No, I mean, sometimes it, um, sometimes that's not the case. But, you know, in Chicago, you know, when you run into Dawood Bay or um, Terry James Marshall or Theester Gates, they're incredibly gracious men. They're very, very nice guys. Um, uh, I, I like to think in Chicago that that goes a little easier. You mm-hmm. know, in New York, it might be a little more... Uh, they might pay a little more attention to the art world pecking order, but in Chicago, this is still a Midwestern town, you know, and, um, but, uh, Richard Hund was just among the best of them. Um, they're planning a big show of his work at white cube gallery. It's, it's, it's just odd that at the tail end of his life, he wound up with a, uh, Uber blue chip, uh, gallery. Hmm. Wow. I mean, in my eyes, this guy was blue chip from day one. Yeah. Uh, just as good as it gets. I mean, especially with the way I love birds, the way that his, his sculpture implied flight just, just lit me up. Hmm. Um, Tony, we need to take a break and, uh, we're going to come back and talk more about, um, 2023 and 2024 uh, when we return after this. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I am joined by the lovely Tony Fitzpatrick. Um, We have been talking about things that have been happening in 2023 um, anything else? You know, one thing I was thinking, you know, when I think of looking back, I think of things in politics and speeches people gave and laws that were passed and referendums that went to a vote. But I don't usually think in terms of who we have lost in the in the last year. And, um, you know, I mean, sometimes as anybody who listens to this show regularly will will tell you. 
as you well know, Tony, sometimes there are certain people, and sometimes it's a an actor or an artist who you grew up knowing about, and and something happens to them, and it almost feels like a personal loss. And something sometimes it's not necessarily somebody you grew up with, but just somebody whose loss affects you. Uh, I felt that way about Andre Brower. I mean, you know, I watched him on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I'd seen some of his dramatic work. And I don't know why it is that every once in a while, there'll be one of those passings that just, it hits hard. It almost it almost feels yeah. like family. You know, I, I knew Andre because I uh, did an episode of Homicide Life in the Street. Really? And, 1996, yeah. Tell me, and tell me what that was like, and talking uh, to him. He he was a great guy. He was from the west side of Chicago. He went to St. Ignatius, and he was an actor's actor. I mean, um, watching him film scenes, I was fortunate enough that I was around for two weeks, and I watched him and Yafet Koto film the scene together. Wow. And it was it was fraught with tension and both actors, every single take had five varieties of the right thing. Huh. They just absolutely were letter perfect. Um that whole show was stocked with great actors. But uh, particularly Brower. I mean he was uh you know, his his character Frank Pembleton was not sure. You know, not your your cutout cop. He was thoughtful, cerebral, and uh, Andre brought an immense gravity to this. So, uh, yeah, I will miss him. Um, I'm sad that Norman Lear is no no longer in the world. Yeah, that I mean, yeah. you know, not that at when you know what was he 103 at a certain point. It's not as, you know, not as shocking as when you find out that at the age of 61, which I don't know about you, 61's looking yeah. awful young to me these days. Absolutely. Um, you know, I just turned 65. I mean, the best gift I ever got in my life was Medicare. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, that was that was kind of an issue over the last, uh, the last few months, you know, being able to access a position, my... Screen Actors Guild insurance had lapsed, and we were on strike. There was no one to talk to, you know. So, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, in the beginning of the year, we lost Lynn Bramer. Oh. And, uh, that was a awful, uh, horrible loss for the whole city of Chicago. You know... I knew that I loved him and I knew that you loved him and there were a lot of people, you know, in the business who loved him. But I think one of the things that really um, warmed my heart was to find out that everybody loved him. I mean, you know, he'd been on the air for a gazillion years, but that doesn't always mean anything um, as far as how people feel about you. He was just... He was one of those people. He wasn't the kind of guy. It's not like he was a pushover or anything, but he wasn't really the kind of guy to make enemies. You know, I mean. No. I mean, all the kids who worked in my studio, Lynn would come by and he'd say, let's go get lunch. And we'd go to 
you know, Little Goat or Yuzu or, uh, you know, one of my usual joints. And uh, he'd take the whole crew. Mm-hmm. You know, and at one time I, I had a crew of five other people here. And he'd take everybody to lunch. And it's like, man, let me, you know, let me pay for this. And he's like, no, 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 no. You know, I mean, uh, you never met a more generous uh, man, a more um, able to uh, engage with anybody. Uh, and Lynn he Bramer. knew just about every chef in town. He was a real yeah. foodie. We went out to lunch. I forget where. Um, but then it was, you know, he was like, oh, and here's the chef here. And this is what she does really well. And I mean, he he was really a renaissance guy. Absolutely. He, oh, he knew his food. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, every every. James Beard Award winning chef in Chicago was on a first name basis with Len Bramer. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and uh, and also, I mean, he really uh, took his job of, of ferreting out interesting music very seriously. I mean, very often you see Lynn at a show at like City Winery or Metro, um, and it'd be you know uh, midnight, twelve thirty. And you realize this guy has to be up and on the air at like 5.30 in the morning. And sure enough, man, he'd do it. Yeah. Uh, the guy was an absolute champion. Um, there's so many bands that owe uh, their subsistence to Lynn Bramer. I mean, he put them on the map, kept them on the map. Um, <laughs> my friend Steve Earl, you know, openly acknowledges that, you know, we're enough for Lynn Bramer. A lot of those, you know, radio platforms, you know, outlaw country, blah, 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 you know, a lot of them wouldn't exist. I mean, he was the guy who opened up AOR Music and invited in, uh, you know, Americana, um, reggae, ska, uh, jazz. I mean, he he was a, uh, you know, multi-talented judge of music. He discerned very, very well. Well, uh, Tony, I'm going to I'm going to wrap this up now. I mean, you and I could talk about Lim Bramer for the rest of the afternoon, but I hear you getting a little a little coffee over there. And I think I've pushed you about as far as I can for a guy who is uh, just uh, just barely on the other side of illness. Thank you, my friend, for uh, doing this, uh, regardless of the fact of uh, you not being 100 percent. I appreciate it. All right. Steve Jones. See you in the new year. Uh, We're going to take a break. Be back with more after this. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I mentioned earlier that... uh, uh, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg did a kind of a PSA thing uh, to uh, let people who are n- traveling over the holidays know about uh, their rights and what they can and can't expect. And I was kind of making fun of it. No, I was definitely making fun of it uh, because it is it is overproduced. There is this really dramatic music, so heartfelt. Pete is speaking to our tiny little hearts this holiday season, and I want to share that with you now. 
If you're planning to take a flight this holiday, here are some things that you should know. This year, we have seen some of the busiest air travel days in U.S. history. And so far, this year, our aviation system has been handling the increased volume well. In fact, cancellations are lower than they were before the pandemic, and we're pushing hard to keep it that way. But if your flight does get delayed or canceled, know that the Department of Transportation has your back. For example, we have secured enforceable commitments from the 10 largest airlines to cover expenses for things like rebooking, meals, and more when you face delays or cancellations that are the airline's responsibility. You should also know that you are entitled to a full cash refund if your flight is canceled for any reason. And our work as a watchdog has helped get over $2.5 billion returned from airlines to travelers. And if you're traveling with children, more airlines are now offering fee-free family seating, something that we are pushing to implement across the board. So before you travel this holiday, take a moment to visit flightrights.gov. Know your rights and what to expect as a passenger. And know that the Department of Transportation is here to support you. You know, I really wish we had that kind of jazzy, heartfelt music to play as I talk to Joe Brancatelli. Uh, he is, of course, behind the travel website and newsletter Joe sent me for the business traveler. And he joins us from time to time to bring us up to speed on what is going on. Joe, I apologize. Next time there will be music. I, I was listening to you, Joe, and thinking, what do I want my music bed to be? <laughs> and I keep thinking... I always wanted to be the fifth top. Everybody else wanted to be the fifth <laughs> Beatle. I wanted to be the fifth, fourth top. So, Let's see, you know, what would next that be? Did they do Bernadette. I'll Be There? Is that a four tops? Yeah, Bernadette. Mm-hmm. Bernadette. You know, I'll, I'll be that. Uh, Renee, we walk can, away, Renee. Get That'll all work. Re-recorded as Brancatelli. Brancatelli! Yeah. So, but they're all dead, of course. Well, three of the four tops are dead, but... Um, so, you know, maybe my time has passed as well as uh, Secretary <laughs> Pete's. That was so weird. I mean, if you want to do a PSA, if you want to post something on social media, fine. But, ooh, I, I got to say that it was just, I don't know, it was creepy. I thought it was creepy. Um, uh, I, I, I think there's something wrong. Uh, you know, we all know that Pete wanted to be president. And mm-hmm. he's figuring, okay, 2028, win or lose, he can run for president again. But he hasn't really done a great job. His three and a half years or three years or so as Secretary of Transportation has been about as effective as that music, uh, which is to say not much. So I, I don't I don't question the commitment. I question the ability and the implementation. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, holiday travel. What do you think? Is it going to be better? Is it going to be is it going to be bad? What should we be paying attention to? Well, we we did a little better than I thought yesterday, Joan, because the East Coast was just pounded with rain, thankfully not snow and high winds. Uh, Obviously, you guys had had them a few days before. Um, And we seem to be bouncing back. okay today, the real flashpoint will be Thursday. That'll be the busiest day of the season. Um, there's a difference here for folks to understand that Thanksgiving is unique. Thanksgiving, everybody needs to be at someone's table on Thursday. 
So it's an immense amount of volume all focused on one day and then everybody flying home a day or two later. The end of the year holiday, Christmas, New Year, Hanukkah, you know, whatever holiday you want, Diwali's been in there recently, um, is more sustained. It goes from, you know, about starting yesterday through the second or third of January. So while the volume is very high, the airlines have a few days to play catch up. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's what, that's where we got into trouble last year with Southwest Airlines when they totally collapsed right during Christmas because of the snow that started in Denver. And I'm curious, was I know that they had a big mess and they, you know, it was partly snow and they said they had software problems. Is this are the software problems? Is that why they were fined recently? Well, they, they, that's part of the creepiness of. We can go back to the creepiness. You know, <laughs> DOT, DOT announced in the early hours Monday morning to make sure that they could get on the morning talk shows um, yesterday that they had fined Southwest Airline $140 million. Uh, um, and it turns, yeah, and it turns Secretary Pete into the, you know, the evil creepy guy from uh, the Mike Myers uh uh, Austin Powers movies. Doctor Evil, and forty million dollars. Doctor Evil. <laughs> he was Doctor Good. Except the problem is when you break it down, it's nowhere near that. The actual number was like thirty-five million. And while that's not an insubstantial amount of money, anytime somebody wants to give me thirty-five million, I'll take it. That breaks down to about seventeen bucks a passenger for all the people that were inconvenienced last year by Southwest's own admission. Two million passengers were either canceled or heavily delayed Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. And the DOT decided that all that time and all that trouble and all that inconvenience you had as a traveler was worth 17 bucks. <laughs> I'm, oh. I'm not sure that is anything more than a slap on a wrist to a multi-billion dollar airline. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, <laughs> so, so sorry about that. Sorry to be that downer, but we, a lot you know, of what you're hearing is either creepy, as you said, to mm-hmm. the PSA, or overblown, overhyped. We're going to make believe we've really got you back when, in fact, we're going to slap the airlines on the wrist and mm-hmm. tell them don't do it again. I mean, there's nothing DOT has done that would guarantee South. it couldn't happen to Southwest again tomorrow, or frankly, United or American. I'm not I'm not honing in on Southwest. It's just that they are the ones who had the meltdown last year. This year, it could be United or American or JetBlue or, you know, you name it, or Delta, uh, because we never know how well prepared the airlines are. Mm. Um, you mentioned the bad weather on the East Coast didn't turn out to be as bad. But I was I was watching a weather report this morning that said that uh, it looks like there could be um, a lot of rain coming to the West Coast. When there's bad weather on the West Coast, it doesn't, is it my imagination that it doesn't seem to disrupt travel as much as problems on the East Coast? Well, we're a little more, we're a little more East Coast centric, uh, this side of the Mississippi River. Uh, uh, but ge- ge- no, but generally you're correct because what happens with delays is they tend to cascade from East to West. Because the day begins in the east, you know, flights start leaving from East Coast airports about 5 a.m., from Chicago about 6 a.m., and as the delays build up, 
they cascade going west. Oh. If you are delayed in the right. So so a flight that leaves New, that's supposed to leave New York at, say, 6 a.m., but doesn't leave until 8, and maybe doesn't make Chicago in, until an hour and a half late, will be two hours late leaving Chicago, and then it'll be three hours late leaving Minneapolis, and then four hours late by the time it gets to, say, Los Angeles or San Francisco or Seattle. When a flight is delayed on the West Coast, that's closer to the end of the day of the population centers east of the Mississippi, so it's sort of the red eyes and the night flights, and people in the east don't feel it quite as much. How has travel recovered post-pandemic? Uh, I, I think I mentioned this to you that my daughter and I took an overseas trip to Japan in April, and our guide was telling us um, that it was like they were facing a tsunami. He said it was. He said it was like everybody who wanted to go to Japan during the pandemic, as soon as all the travel restrictions were lifted, they all booked their tickets. And I mean, we had trouble. Um, we there were days when we couldn't get an English speaking driver, which is always interesting when you don't speak Japanese. Um, but uh, what is twenty? Yes. What does the post-pandemic era look like, and what does 2024 look like, Joe? Well, it's, it's very interesting you say that, Joan, because weirdly, Japan and China have been two of the countries that have been the slowest to recover from the pandemic. Uh, China, because their, their restrictions were so draconian, and Japan, because it's just the kind of country where they take everything. You know, these are people who treat health seriously, and they wear masks when they get a cold so they don't infect their neighbors. Um, so globally, we've probably reached about 85% of pre-pandemic traffic, and that's reflecting the fact that big markets like China and Japan are still la uh, lagging. But in the United States, I, I give you this, the two busiest travel days in history have been this year, June the really? 30th, which, yeah, which is just before the 4th of July, and the first day where more than 2.9 million people traveled in a single day, and that was November 26th, which is, if I can recall, a whole month ago. Was that like a day or two after? I, can't, I truly can't remember. Was that like a day or two after Thanksgiving? But uh, five of the ten busiest days in history have been this year huh. at the airport. Um, and what's, what's perhaps most notable of that is that the mix has changed. There's much more leisure travel now than business travel used to be. Business travel is actually still lagging in this country. 70, well, you know, it's 80%. funny that you say that, but we have um, we have evidence of that. You know, Ray works for Apple and he does he works with corporations. And a lot of times when he has talked about like they're going to be doing something fancy at Cupertino and he gets to invite some people a lot of times they're saying we don't have a travel budget. Um, we are not traveling yet. Um, and our, our, uh, corporate offices are not going to sign off on any kind of travel, uh, for the foreseeable future. That, that's, that is certainly part of the, the slump in business travel. The other part of it is if you're not in the office five days a week, as many people still are not, it's very hard to schedule a business trip for someone to come in and, you know, try to sell you something or work on a problem because no one knows when you're in the office. You know, it's, it's, a, it's okay that we all can work remotely as long as the job gets done. 
But if something, if you're looking, you know, you're not going to invite a salesman to your house, you know, so, <laughs> so we still need offices and people are still not in offices. So people are reluctant to travel. There's certainly been cutbacks. Um, T&E, as they call it, travel and entertainment, is, is probably looked at as the very first part of the budget a corporation can cut. They can't mm-hmm. cut salaries very often because there's either union agreements or contracts or, you know, there are white-collar businesses that need the employees. You know, another second cost is information systems. Well, in this day and age, you can't, you can't cut that because, you know, you'll, you'll get left behind. So cost number three on, on the corporate budget is T&E, and that they think they can cut. Well, we don't need to send as many people to conventions, you know, stop mm-hmm. eating in fancy restaurants. Uh, maybe we don't need that business trip to a Zoom. So that's why business travel is still very soft compared to pre-pandemic. And yet total volume of travel is up, which means leisure travel has risen through the roof. And that's going to be an interesting thing to watch to see whether everybody's done. They've been calling it revenge travel um, for all the time we were locked down during the pandemic. It'll be interesting to see if that trend lasts since 2024. There are some signs that it won't, at least domestically, but international continues to be extraordinarily busy huh. um, in 2024. And there are no bargains out there at all. That's what I was going to ask you. Where are the bargains? Where do we, if we were, if we want to go someplace and, uh, and maybe, uh, get a little bit of a deal, where are you sending us anywhere? Uh, stay, stay in America. I mean, and I'm serious about that. Um, you know, the, the airlines are throwing an immense amount of capacity, Joan, at international destinations in Asia. It's catch up to the, you know, the, Still, we're not there totally in pre-pandemic. But in Europe um, and, and even the Middle East, to some or at least until, uh, you know, until October 7th, um, the airlines just can't fly enough aircraft. Really? Even, even in, yeah, even in the middle of the winter, you know, people are just pounding uh, things. And, and the, don't forget, the Olympics in 2024 will be in Paris. Um, and as I, as I headlined it on my piece last week uh this will be paris when it swindles because <laughs> we're looking we're looking at what paris hotels are charging oh. and they're about five or six hundred percent more than they were charging this year i mean the parisians wow. are ready are ready willing and able to rip you off so wow. maybe look at america you know time to if you're living in chicago come visit us in new york or new england or maybe hit somewhere in the south or this is the year you finally get to go to the Grand Canyon or something. That's really that's really fascinating. But you know, I um, I guess what the kind of pricing you're talking about, dynamic pricing, I guess there's something like they would call it. I recently experienced that um, in in New York. There was some there was some I don't know I don't know what some big some big to, oh it was United Nations Week. In New York. Oh, that's always and, a nightmare, yeah. And the hotels, the hotels that I, I knew what they cost, because I'd stayed in them before, were asking like like two and a half times the normal price. Is that the way of the world now? Oh, my gosh, we got, uh, something, we got something big coming. Let's raise the price. Well, I think it's always, uh, you know, as a, as a born and raised New Yorker, I always 
advise people if you hear if you hear the general assembly is about to start, stay away. Because, you know, there's all those, you know, there's there's hundreds of dignitaries coming and often it's the premier or the or the president or the or the dictator of the week. And they all travel with big entourages. And, you know, the even a place like New York can't handle it. It's it's like Chicago during the big conventions at McCormick mm-hmm. Place. You can't beg, borrow or steal a room at any price. So Europe is like that. Europe, certainly Paris for 2024 looks to be that way. Um but, you know, Italy is crazy. Spain is getting crazy. Um, a lot people, of people you know, I know have been heading to Portugal. And I think Portugal is um, is becoming a big destination um, for a lot of people. Is that a, a place you'd recommend? I, uh, Portugal and especially Lisbon. I'm, I'm a city guy, Joan. So I love cities more than anything. Um, Portugal is a beautiful place where everyone speaks English. Um, like like the Netherlands, it's taught in schools. So, you know, you walk up to the most humble market, somebody there will speak English. Um, and by the way, Portuguese doesn't sound, Portuguese, the way the Portuguese speak it, does not sound like the bossa nova. Americans, <laughs> we're, used to hearing, we're used to hearing Brazilians speak, and Brazilians speak in these lovely, round, lush, musical tones. <laughs> um, the Portuguese speak Portuguese, and it sounds almost Slavic. Huh. which is not to criticize Slavic languages, but it really shocked me the first couple of times I went. I was going there expecting the girl from Ipanema and Wave and, you know, and everybody sounding like a Joe Beam song. And it turns out, no, this is our language. We speak it this way. But yes, Portugal has two advantages. It's less, at the moment, lower priced than much of the rest of Western Europe. It's also closer, okay, by an hour, an hour, to, you know, it's, Portugal is three hours closer to Chicago as as the plane flies than, say, Greece. Hmm. Um, but there are other places, you know, Central Central Europe, you know, Slovenia, Slovakia. These places are becoming popular. You'll find some bargains there. Um, you know, Prague? better days. Is Prague still uh, a bargain? Uh, no, Prague is not a bargain anymore because that's what everybody thought Central Europe should be. Uh, that's the one the one place they knew they knew prague you know bratislava they don't know you know uh all all the places in the balkans they may have heard of they thought were wars um you know so so uh, you know the the american map of europe is pretty sad you know um normally this would be a time to say boy eastern europe and eastern europe has been a bargain but with the with the fighting still going on in the Ukraine, you know, Americans say, well, yeah. isn't that close to Bulgaria? <clears throat> yeah, it is. But nobody's fighting in Bulgaria. So so if you can't afford the big places in, in Europe next year, it really would be a good idea to look domestically. Um, you know, it, it won't be cheap, but it'll be cheaper than going to Europe or, you know, you can look at Canada. You can look at Mexico. Um, the. Um, the Caribbean, which becomes the off season, even not because the weather is bad, but because if you're sitting there on Michigan Avenue right now, you much rather would be in Trinidad right now than say June. You know, so so the the Caribbean gets less crowded in the summer times, and there are some bargains to be had. What are your of all the places you've been to in the United States? What would be your top three recommendations? Well, uh, I, without sounding like I'm pandering, I love Chicago. 
I Chicago to me is like a big city, but polite. I, I mean, maybe <laughs> maybe locals don't feel that way, but I remember the first few times I came to Chicago, and it was for business. You know, fifty mm-hmm. years ago when I first came, when I was a cup reporter on a on a trade newspaper, and they sent me to McCormick Place. You know, and I would say, well, I'm a New Yorker. I'm tough. I can handle anything. I heard about this town. And everybody was so nice. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I wasn't prepared for that. So so I have I have this emotional attachment to Chicago. I also love Pittsburgh. People say, well, why would you go to Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh is beautiful. Now that the steel mills are gone, which is why, you know, John Fetterman is so nervous that a Japanese company is buying mm-hmm. U.S. steel because U.S. steel doesn't even make steel anymore. Pittsburgh is one of the most beautiful and green urban cities you've ever seen. It's three, literally three rivers run to it and through it. Um, You know, and there are, there are funiculars that go up the hills. Um, You know, so I love, I love places like that. When I first graduated from college, I had a job where I had to travel pretty much every day of the week. And growing up in Ohio, uh, we had some relatives in Pennsylvania, so we would always make fun of Pittsburgh like it was the worst city in the country. And the first time I went there, I was blown away by how beautiful it was. It was it it really was um, stunning. So after that, I made fun of Buffalo. Yeah, Buffalo, buff, poor Buffalo. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I mean, it's, it's I, I've been thinking about this a lot about why, the, you know, why did people ever live in Buffalo? You might ask. <laughs> and no, no, I don't. I don't mean that to be vicious. People lived in Buffalo because, yeah, there was a lot of snow, but where were you going to live? You weren't going to live in Alabama or Georgia or Florida back in the day because there was no air conditioning, and you would be living in a swamp. So, comparative to living in a swamp, oh, the bad winters in Buffalo weren't so bad. Now, you know. A lot of places in Illinois have this issue. Certainly a lot of places in upstate New York have this issue. Um, that's, you know, people wonder, well, why did 500,000 people ever live in Buffalo? Why did a million people ever live in Cleveland? And I'm an, in, excuse me, I'm a Cleveland Guardians fan now. But I, I grew up an Indians fan, even though I was born and raised in Brooklyn. Um, and I would go to Cleveland all the time. And you would go, you would walk to places and see them empty. And they've been empty for years. And you wondered why people ever lived there. In the first place, well, they lived there because America was born and raised in the Rust Belt. You either lived in the Rust Belt or the Farm Belt. So, ironically, these are beginning to be good places to go look at. <laughs> well, I was born in Cleveland and uh, grew up in the area that's now considered suburbs. And, uh, yeah, I couldn't wait to get out of there. But that's one of the places where I get, do we still call it urban renewal, has been really successful there are some great, great parts of Cleveland. Not that I would recommend for those of you listening, like, oh, you want to travel domestically? Go to Cleveland. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that to you, though. There is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and some and great a wonderful museums. ballpark. Progressive yes. Field is if you're a, if you're if you're a ball a baseball fan, Progressive Field is a great place to watch a ball game. There are some great restaurants. So I love urban areas. Um, yeah. Even, even as we say upstate New York, you know, I've been hurt. Upstate New York is beautiful. And one of the things you wouldn't expect, you can now take a canal boat on the Erie Canal. <laughs> and it's just amazingly beautiful. You, you float past these places that time has forgotten. 
um, you know, and and you just love it because you don't expect it to be as beautiful as it is. Thank you for Bernadette. <laughs> we have some beautiful Joe Brancatelli music, and and because he'll be there and everywhere. <laughs> Uh, his uh, website and newsletter is Joe sent me, Joe sent me dot com. Um, we got Pittsburgh as a recommendation. We've got Chicago as a recommendation. Joe says uh, we're better off traveling domestically. Joe, thank you so much. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. We have been inviting various of our friends to join us to Look back at the highlights or perhaps lowlights of 2023 and look forward to what we can expect in the new year. One of the people I reached out to is the ACLU of Illinois' Ed Yanka. Ed, how are you? I am well, Joan. Happy holidays to you. Happy holidays to you, too. You know, we just were talking to uh, Joe Brancatelli, who uh, does uh, reports on particularly business travel and uh, asked him what his theme song would be. And it was uh, the Four Tops, I'll Be There. Um, is there a theme song for you or the ACLU? What would that, let's see, what would that be? Wow. Um, you know, I know in a strange way, I think for me, it would be something like uh, We Are Family. Ah. Uh, because I, 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 I think there's a theme both in what we've seen and what we face, that is about when we're unified, when we stick together, when we act as one and and look out for the interests of all people. I think we're much more powerful and I think we can achieve almost anything. Wow. Good answer, Ed Yanka. Wow. And I didn't I have to tell you, I did not uh, warn Ed Yanka that that question was coming his way. And uh, now I feel well, kind of ashamed because, you know, Andy and I from at, back at the studio have been talking about this. <laughs> the songs we've come up with for various uh, theme songs haven't been anywhere near as um, touching and heartfelt. <laughs> Well, I have to confess that although I didn't have the song, I'm doing it by, you know, as a song I really love. Uh, I, I will confess, I think, as, as we wind down to the, you know, to the end of the year, I've been thinking about this question a lot when I think about, you know, a, a couple of things. First of all, uh, you know, just last week, um, we held for the first time in, in four years because of COVID, we held a live version of our uh, uh, legislative awards program and to see the kinds of things that had happened and the kinds of bills uh, that we've had passed in Illinois and the kinds of legislation and the commitment of legislators to moving that forward was for me a reminder of the degree to which, you know, the, 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 the kind of the shared experience when, when legislators and advocates and people from across the state are working together just what's possible. And, and I've been thinking about that theme a lot, you know, in the time since, um, uh, since then, uh, in terms of just thinking about the end of the year as we, as we cruise towards that time. Yeah. Well, you know, I, um, shared with you the, 
um, one of the many emails that I get on a regular basis from the ACLU. And I thought, oh, my God, did they know I was going to be talking to Ed? Because it's like, OK, let's let's look back uh, here in the state of Illinois at some of the things that have happened that the ACLU of Illinois has been involved with. And I was like, oh, my goodness, here we go. It's an outline for our conversation about 2023. <laughs> uh, so let's start with the. Um, Item that was at the top of the list, ending the use of money bond and making yeah. Illinois the first state to abolish this. Let's talk about yeah. that. You know, can I can I that's where I wanted to start, because I, I I just think it's so we this is something, you know, we often talk about, you know, what's happening somewhere else or what things are occurring or we talk about how bad things are or that we're going in the wrong direction. Illinois this year became the first state in the union to end the use of money bond. There are the, the population of people being detained pre-trial in uh, county jails simply because they don't have the money to mm-hmm. pay for their bail is falling across the state. You know, people are being detained not on the basis of their wealth, but on the basis of whether or not they're a threat to the community or a threat to someone in the community. That's the way this system always should have worked. And the fact that we have managed to create policy that is that is allowing it to work that way is, is something that we all, I think, in Illinois should be incredibly proud of. And, and, and you know, it really is a harbinger uh, of how we can look at our criminal legal system going forward for other future changes. Yeah, I mean, really, what we had in place, even though nobody called it that, it was like debtor's prison. I mean, yeah. you know, you if if you were rich enough, it sort of didn't matter what crime you had committed, because no matter how high the bail or the bond posted, you were able to meet that. Whereas if you were charged with something relatively low level, you could be stuck in jail awaiting trial for a long time. And people have had their they've lost their jobs. They've had their cars repossessed. And then in irony of all ironies, you know, a lot of these people, when it was finally time, uh, their cases would be dismissed or they would be found not guilty and, and their lives were ruined for what? Yeah. And I think the even more corrosive part of that is is that there were there were people, you know, who we heard lots about who would be, you know, held in those facilities and they would go through the thing of losing a home or losing a car or losing a job or, you know, being separated from their family and being threatened maybe with losing their children. So they were there was this perverse incentive to plead guilty to things they didn't do yes. and, and then be released as time served. Like, think of how awful that is. I mean, we want our system of justice to demonstrate that somebody has indeed, you know, is guilty of the things that we're saying that they're guilty of. And, you know, the idea or the notion that we put this bizarre kind of economic system in place to lever them into pleading guilty is just cruel and and just not what we needed to do. I I will tell you, Joan, I think when, you know, I, I hope that we get a chance to do this program next year. Uh, <laughs> and I just wonder if we won't see other states that will be following our lead 
on this because, you know, I think one of the things we, we certainly have seen, remember, as you as you know, from the political talking points, the sky was going to fall in on oh, Illinois God, yes. the minute we did this. Right, There we was going to be chaos purge. in the streets. There was going right. to be fire. There was going to be mass murder. Yeah, I'm looking out the streets now downtown here. It doesn't look like chaos to me. Um, and, and so, you know, I think there are going to be other states that are going to look at this and say, hey, you know what? We really ought to be looking at doing this for ourselves. Uh, mm-hmm. And and I think we're going to see, you know, I think we're going to see movement in this direction. And I think people in Illinois and the people who work for this and, and this was not a single year effort, as you know, heck, it didn't you know, it took longer than a year to implement because of, of court challenges and things of that nature. I mean, literally, I think we are going to, you know, when we look back in in a couple of years, we're going to see Illinois as having really been a leader on this in a really important way. Yeah, I'm so proud. You know, I mean, it's wonderful when we enact good legislation based on similar legislation that's been enacted in other states. But it's um, it's especially remarkable when we lead the way, when we are the first state in the nation to do something. And you're and you're absolutely right. I mean, this did not happen. Somebody didn't just wake up one morning and say, you know what? I don't think this is fair. We should have a new system. And then by the end of the year, the new system is in place. No, there has been a lot of negotiation, a lot of work done on this and a surprising amount of pushback. I never understood how um, it was almost as if because, you know, Judges now, judges, prosecutors, they have to pay attention to the defendants and they have to decide whether this defendant presents a harm to themselves and others and decide on that basis whether or not to keep them in jail. And it's almost like there was a large group of people who didn't seem to think that those people were capable of making those kinds of assessments. The fact that somehow... If we enacted this, our streets would be flooded with criminals. You and I both heard people say that exact thing. Criminals, yeah. there's going to be everybody's going to just commit crimes because but cash because there's no cash bail anymore. And and it it never made sense to me. It, it was it was almost hysterical at some points. Yeah. And I think what it, I think the other part of that is, Joan, that there are so many things. Look, I, I, you know, you and I talked about this, I think, right after the mayoral election that, you know, that, that, that people people have a very sophisticated perspective, I think, on policing and criminal justice issues like they want to be safe, but they know that like these old antiquated ideas are not the way that we're going to be safe. They're not the things that keep us safe. They're not the things that are going to protect, you know, your community, my community, our neighborhoods. And and what is, I think what is, what was so profound in this instance was, is that, is that somehow there was this narrative that somehow bail kept us safe. And when, when in point of fact, you know, as long as somebody had the money, you could be charged with the most horrendous and heinous of crimes and and get yourself free. Like mm-hmm. it never made any logical sense that this was the thing, that this was the system that we needed to protect. And so, you know, I, th- I think that, as I say, I think that this is the, 
you know, that, that Illinois will, will be viewed as a leader. I think the, the folks in Illinois who, you know, rejected this kind of hysteria, I think that's the best word for it, and, and really, you know, encouraged legislators uh, to make this change, I think, who stood up against the kind of political, uh, um, you know, language that we saw around this. I think, you know, one day we're going to look back and recognize just the incredible contribution um, that a lot of people have made uh, to to, you know, our governance across the country um, by having stood strong around this particular issue. Yeah. I'm speaking with Ed Yanka, who's with the ACLU of Illinois. We are looking back at some of the accomplishments of 2023, and we're going to continue this right after a break. You know what time it is? Hello? Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Now on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Ed Yanka of the American Civil Liberties Union of Illinois. We are talking about some of the accomplishments that have come about here in our state. Another one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, Ed, were the name change laws. Talk about that and why it is so important. Uh, uh, this one is, uh, is sort of a personal favorite just because... Um, it took a long time, and this is the one we, we, you know, where you really see the people who are being so directly impacted. So while Illinois has done a lot of things uh, to really help folks who are transgender protect their rights, uh, allow them to change the gender marker on their birth certificates, uh, a host of things of that nature, one of the places where we remain sort of antiquated uh, was was in the fact that that we had these bans, either a ten year ban or a lifetime ban, on people uh, being able to change their name uh, on their birth certificate if, in fact, uh, they were uh, they had been convicted of any kind of felony. And as you know, there's a disproportionate number of people who are transgender and people, uh, particularly of people who are transgender and people who have been victims of human trafficking who actually are convicted of uh, these kinds of offense or those kinds of offenses and therefore can't change their names. And, and if you think about the implications of that, imagine being a trans person, getting your life together, living completely unauthentically as yourself but then going to get a job or going just to have drinks with friends and you have to present an ID that mm-hmm. has somebody else's name on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that, and that I think in, in many ways, uh, you know, was the impetus behind what was like a six year effort uh, to change this law. And early in the, the year um, it was changed. I should say that, you know, Kelly Cassidy was the, sponsor in the House of Representatives and had passed it. Uh, Bill Cunningham uh, was the sponsor in the Senate who finally got it over the finish line early in the new year. Uh, and the and the governor, you know, signed the bill into law and it takes effect on January 1st. So you have these folks who've lived in this limbo of not no, you know, no reoffenses, you know, not being engaged in any sort of criminal activity but just having their lives kind of held back and, and, and uh, you know, uh, delayed in many ways from restarting 
uh, by this antiquated law. And what we know now uh, is that come two weeks from today, uh, they'll be able to file. And, and what it does is it's not an automatic thing, uh, as, as many of the name changes are, but it simply says that, you know, you can file this and then a judge looks at it and sees if there's a legitimate reason uh, for you to change it without waiting the 10 years. So it, 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 it allows for someone to look at this uh, and make a determination, you know, whether or not this serves someone's life, whether or not they are, uh, you know, are working to better themselves. All the things you want a judge to decide as opposed to just having these kind of blanket bans in place. Um, and this is really exciting for people uh, to be able to kind of go ahead and live their life and 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 become the people that they really want to be, be presenting themselves as they are uh, and moving beyond, you know, horrific experiences in terms of human trafficking. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a really important bill. It, it's one of those things that kind of, you know, it seems like smallly and wonder who it really affects. But. Boy, oh boy, for the people that it does affect, it really makes a huge amount of difference. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's life changing. It's it yeah. is nothing short of that. Um, the other area that I want to talk to is um, uh, abortion rights, uh, gender affirming care uh, rules and and laws here in the state of Illinois. It is it is becoming so important to make sure that you live in a state that uh, allows, you know, you to make a decision um, on something regarding your body with just you and your doctor and the state doesn't have to get involved in that. Just this morning, uh, Ed, on, on CNN, I was seeing that at least in, I think it's in Texas, there's a move um, that certain city governments want to pass Laws that like you can't leave the city for an abortion. I mean, it's just getting so absurd out there and and so awful and so misogynistic. Talk about what's happened here in Illinois. Yeah. You know, you know, can I just say just for a minute on those ordinances in Texas that it isn't simply that they say it's going to be illegal. What they what they actually do say it's a criminal offense to use the streets or the roads of the town to help someone or to leave to get an abortion. They're literally criminalizing driving. Um, It it is, it is beyond absurd uh, in, in terms of what's happening. So what we see is, I think, I think there's a couple of things on this and it, and it really gets to, um, what we've seen happen here and, 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 and what we've done to protect uh, uh, the rights of people who are seeking abortion or gender-affirming care. The first is, is that we know that more, more states are attempting to pass or passing uh, the kinds of bans or laws or local ordinances or uh, uh, rules and regulations uh, that we have seen that that we talked about earlier from Texas, but they're also doing a second thing, and this is this is what becomes really really important um, for Illinois. So in you know in many places, doctors, caregivers, etc., hold licenses in multiple states. It is not uncommon, for example, for someone who practices medicine in uh, the metro east area of Illinois 
to have a license both in Illinois and in Missouri. What what the the Missouri, for example, uh, legislature has attempted to do is to punish doctors in Missouri for practicing lawful medicine in Illinois. And that matters because what they often will do is try to attack their licenses in Missouri. And once they do that, the, the rules and understandings and collaborative and reciprocal relationships between and among states are normally that if someone's license is pulled in one state, it's automatically pulled in another state. And that's just kind of a basic example. So what the legislature did and what the governor signed into law was a series of protections that said, we're not going to allow someone to lose their license in Illinois for practicing medicine that is legal in Illinois. And, and, and that is important in large measure because, as you know, I think you and I have talked about before, Joan, we need every single caregiver that we can in this state because we're having to be an oasis or a refuge yeah. for people from those states to come to. You know, and and part of what we're, you know, part of this effort is not only to assure people that they can actually practice medicine in the state of Illinois without feeling threatened by the long arm of the law from some other state. And and by the way, we ought to actually I mean, I think part of freedom is actually, you know, letting people uh, uh, is letting people practice medicine. We don't need uh, I, I'm old enough to remember, Joan, you are. I'm old <laughs> enough when the Republicans would warn us against death panels. And near as I can figure out, that's now the Texas Supreme Court is the death panel, right? Yep. They're yep. deciding who gets what care. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Illinois, you know, what we're trying to make sure is that we aren't letting those kinds of statutes and those kinds of threats make their way into this state as we try to make sure that people have a place, a refuge, a place where they can come to, a place where they can get care, a place where they can bring their children for gender affirming care. If that's what they decide to do as a family and that's what a doctor recommends, you know, without the threat of the government coming down on them and telling them what care is lawful and what care isn't. Um, you know, I think I think that's one thing that is is really incredibly important that's happening, uh, you know, through this piece of legislation that was passed earlier in the year. Um, and then we're seeing this play out at the local level as well that I can I, I'm happy to talk about as well. OK, well, we'll we'll get to that. Uh, Ed Yonka and I are going to take a quick break. We're going to be back with more after this. This is Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Ed Yonka from the ACLU of Illinois. We have been talking about some of the ACLU's accomplishments here in Illinois in the last year. Ed, before we go on, uh, we got a, in the break, we got a caller who says they have a question for you. Ron from Chicago is on the line. Ron, go ahead and ask Ed Yonka your question. Yes, uh, I have uh, recently been seeing uh, ad advertisements to be a member of the ACLU, and uh, I just wonder what the cost of that would be, and also how would this help uh, 
person playing to get reelected. Oh, oh, thanks, Ron. So our our um, actually our giving level for a basic membership um, starts at twenty dollars per year and really contemplates people being able to, um, you know, to, to, to donate or contribute uh, whatever it is that they can. I think a lot of the ads that you, you see on TV, there's, uh, there's the one with Kamu Bell, uh, for example, that I think many of us see run regularly um, that, is, that, that invites people or really encourages people um, to become a monthly donor uh, and I forget that there are various levels uh, for that. But but the idea being uh, like like most organizations that with a, with a with a cadre of people uh, who are monthly donors, that it just encourages and creates stability uh, around our ability to to organize and, and do programming. And in terms of what it goes to support it, it, it really is supporting um, the work of the organization uh, largely across the country uh, from, you know, from the work we're doing here in Illinois, as I've been discussing, to, uh, you know, the work we're doing in, in, you know, some of the southern states or the former Confederate states uh, to try to protect voting rights to, uh, you know, to, to the other states where you're seeing bans on um, you know, whether it's gender affirming care or drag shows or uh, any of those kinds of things. So it really goes to support the whole panoply of the of the work of the organization. I happen to be um, a member myself, Ron. Uh, not that I, I think that uh, uh, you necessarily have to have to do it. Everybody has to kind of make these decisions on their own. But um I think the ACLU and, uh, of course, Ed Yanka uh, do great work here in the state of Illinois and, frankly, across the nation. Um, and, th- Ron, thanks for the call. Hey, Ed, you got to do a little bit of a commercial. How's that? It really seems amazing to me that they don't ask me to do those nationally as opposed, <laughs> as opposed to Kamu. But I can't understand why that's never come up uh, in our national office. It, An oversight. It, it just just feels, simply, I'm, I'm sure they're just getting around to it this year. This will be the year. We'll, this we'll do will that. be the year. Um, okay, there's a couple more things that we've accomplished in Illinois that I want to make sure we have um, time to talk about. Traffic stops. Um, We found we've seen the statistics for years that black and Latino drivers get stopped more than white drivers. Tell me what's happened with that. Yeah. So and you're you're absolutely right. This year marked the 20th year uh, that Illinois has collected and detailed uh, those stops. Uh, uh, across the state in every jurisdiction is required to report that. That is, uh, as I've said a gazillion times before, um, that is legislation that goes back to Barack Obama's sponsorship in the Illinois State Senate in the, in the early 2000s. And again, what that has consistently found is that black and Latino motorists are much more likely to be stopped. They're much more likely to be searched. And when they are searched, you are much more less likely to find contraband in the cars of black and Latino drivers than white drivers who are subjected to the same searches. That's just what the data has shown for 20 years. This year, we took a special look um, at what was happening in the city of Chicago. In the city of Chicago, 
you know, the number of traffic stops a year has just escalated over the last several years uh, by several hundred thousand. Um, and, and, you know, there, there were, you know, some years with more than 600,000 stops. There are some years that we looked at the numbers that like from, if you just take like 2014 or 2015 as a baseline that today, uh, CPD officers are conducting, you know, like, like 20 stop, extra stops an hour across the city, uh, on a daily basis, every hour in order to reach these numbers. And, and not surprisingly, uh, what we're seeing is that is that um, these stops are concentrated against uh, black and Latino motorists and that they're yielding very little in terms of uh, in terms of any kind of, of safety on the highways or or the roadways. And so we filed a lawsuit against uh, CPD um, earlier this year that challenges this practice in Chicago in particular because. Uh, what what we knew from what police officials have said is that they were conducting these stops not to, you know, try to keep traffic safe, not to try to end accidents. But they really saw it as a tool for stopping, investigating, searching uh, individuals and looking for guns or drugs or other kinds of contraband. And, of course, the numbers just show that it's a really poor way uh, to do that because you just don't find anything. Um, and so, you know, we, we filed this suit. The city has moved to try to dismiss the lawsuit. Uh, you know, we intend to litigate this vigorously and to go on. Uh, you know, some of our, uh, some of our clients in this case, you know, report having been stopped multiple times. Um, one young woman who's one of our clients in this uh, case joined the lawsuit because she had been stopped 14 times over 16 months, 14 times over 16 months. And the thing that she was the most worried about and the thing that made her decide to join our lawsuit was that she was mostly concerned that one day uh, she would be stopped um, when her uh, you know, son, her toddler son, was in the car with her and that that, you know, just given how people feel about uh, uh, traffic stops and what they've seen happen, it just frightened her uh, yeah. that her son might be part of that experience. Lo and behold, she joined our lawsuit in May and in June, one Friday afternoon, picked up her son from daycare and decided to take him to a park. She's driving along to go to the park with her son and they were pulled over. Mm. No ticket, no nothing. It was it was just a you know an officer leaning into the car, looking at her closely, uh, you know, a, a sort of sort of looming over her, demanding that she produce all of her information, including her insurance information, which she had on her phone and not on a on a card. I mean, it was just the kind of harassing thing, and it was the very thing she hoped wouldn't happen, ended up happening, and and so you know. It's clear that that these stops are not producing safe traffic safety. They're not really serving any other purpose, but, you know, really threatening people in, in sort of a menacing way. Um, and it's and it's really time to change the way that we think about, uh, you know, this kind of, of enforcement. You know, I, I, I can't imagine. I mean, you know, when you just say it like this, 
Like, I just can't imagine anything that, that, you know, drives a larger wedge between the police and the community that they're supposed to serve than pulling people over on the side of a road and delaying them, you know, when they're taking their son to the park or going to the Mm -hmm. doctor or going to work or driving for, um, you know, Grubhub or DoorDash or whatever. Uh, You know, these are things that 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 just, again, like create this distrust and this tension uh, in, in our community that just really need to be addressed. And, and you know, we're hopeful that this lawsuit will be the beginning of a process in Chicago um, that we've seen in some other communities that, that will really move towards, uh, you know, ending this sort of practice and the use of stops as, you know, allegedly a crime-fighting tool. Yeah. Um, what has been the other side? What do they argue that that um, somehow police need this power? They need to be able to utilize their own discretion. I mean, that somehow yeah. bad guys will get away if cops can't just stop with a, a random car. So there's a couple different arguments and you've kind of hit on one in an interesting way. Um, it is, you know, because many of these stops are predicated, for example, on the idea that that, uh, you know, there there needs to be, you know, we need to have these stops because, you know, we really need to look at 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 people, um, you know, in their cars who might be engaged in, uh, you know, who might have have, uh, um, you know, some sort of, of vehicle malfunction, a light out, you know, something like that. Or alternately, you know, who you just want to check to make sure that they're insured and, you know, that, that those kinds of things are, are happening. Um, th- that argument is really kind of perplexing in many ways when you, when you put it up against what the record is, where th- it, there are just very, very few people who, you know, get stopped who actually are cited. Um, you know, well, that's why I would think the cops would be like, this is a waste of our time. You know, Um, you know, yeah, if if the statistics don't say that we are finding lots of guns and lots of bad people this way, then it is a waste of our time. Well, and, and, you know, candidly, you know, that is one of the things uh, that that it's really interesting when you when you talk like to our clients in this particular case, like for many of them, they live in communities that are experiencing gun violence and they want that gun violence to stop. What they'll say to you pretty quickly is, you know, hey, guess what? Stopping me 12 times in two years mm-hmm. is not going to stop that violence. It's a misuse of the time. It's pulling people away from the real work that they should be doing to focus on this. I suspect there are lots of officers who feel the same way. Um, You know, just that it seems to me that that's got to be a reality, just given the fact that there's just a, you know, that that's a, you know, when you when you think about the the minimum of 10 or 15 minutes it takes to pull somebody over uh, and, and, you know, uh, run their plates and talk to them and, and, you know, look at their license and check for warrants and do those things. Like, like think of all of that time that could be used for other things, even if it was just in, in interacting with the community in a more positive way and thinking and talking about, 
you know, what it is that people think is happening in the community and what kind of concerns really need to be addressed. And so it's just a waste of time that also just wastes the precious resource of community relations. Yeah, I agree. Um, and this is going on. This is a case uh, with the involving the Chicago police, correct? That, that's right. But but I should say, uh, uh, you know, I was recently I mean, I've, I've been in communications recently with folks in Danville, Illinois, who are trying to get their city council to look at this because and we got a they text. have many of this. Andy got a communication from Helen from Aurora, who says that they have a similar case going on there as well. Yes, yes, yes. And, and you know, we also see, I was just down before a, a board, a commission in Bloomington where, you know, the numbers have been, you know, black drivers are five times more likely to be stopped in Bloomington than white drivers. And that's something that's remained pretty persistent over about 10 or 15 year period. So, you know, this is not just a Chicago problem. Our mm-hmm. lawsuit is in Chicago, but it really is a problem um, that we're seeing in communities large and small across the across the state. And, you know, we've got the data now. And I, I think even if even if law enforcement doesn't want to say from the beginning, OK, we will stop traffic enforcement for minor offenses, you know, we'll we'll just issue a ticket, um, you know, through the mail uh, for a vehicle uh, issue or for a equipment issue or for something like that. Uh, you know, even if we don't get to that point, we ought to at least have a conversation about why this data looks so far out of whack, why it is uh, that we continue to have, um, you know, we continue to see that happening uh, in this way in so many communities across our state. Ed, we need to take another break. I'm talking to Ed Yanka from the ACLU of Illinois. We're going to be right back after this. You're listening to WCPT 820. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Ed Yanka, who is with the ACLU of Illinois. We've been going over all of the accomplishments the ACLU has um been a part of in Illinois in the last year. One last thing before I ask Ed to look into the future. Um, efforts to limit free speech and free expression, efforts being made by local governments across the state. Get, tell us about that, Ed. So this this one is, is really the one, Joan, that I think that, um, you know, probably many of your listeners have heard the most about because these are really these efforts to, you know, for example, uh, change a local ordinance so somebody can't have a drag show in a park district building or, uh, you know, the efforts around book banning that we've seen. And, and again, while we, we haven't, you know, uh, we haven't necessarily seen a lot of book banning itself in Illinois, um, it doesn't mean that, the, that, the, that we aren't seeing the efforts to do it. It, it, it is... Uh, you know, it is it is a persistent theme across the country, um, you know, and Illinois is not immune to that in any way. So even, for example, um, and, and, you know, this is a little trickier because it's not a book ban, um, but but some of your listeners may be familiar with the fact that in Yorkville, uh, in their school district, uh, an English class like an honors sophomore English class 
has for a number of years used the text uh, uh, for Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy uh, as like a core curriculum to the class. Uh, A single member of the community um, challenged the book. Uh, The school district took it up. uh, The school board took it up. Um, was in, you know was was uh, did did an exploration with the administration and with the teacher as to why that book was used. School board votes to keep the book. Um, elections happened last spring. Uh, a new set of school board members come into play, uh, and they uh, in a in a um, you know closed door meeting decide to end the use of that book. And mm-hmm. one of my favorite parts of this is. Is that is that um, you know as, as many of your uh, listeners may know, uh, Just Mercy is really the story of of Brian Stevenson confronting uh, systemic racism in our criminal legal system, including um, you know uh, his defense of people who were on death row who were innocent, and uh, uh, so they they banned the book. Um, and, and the person who banned the book was quoted in the local media saying that they, they really thought there needed to be a more balanced view of the subject. I'm not sure what the balanced view of racism is. I, 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 like, I just don't know what that would be. Um, but, you know, it, it, is, it is that kind of thing. And, and, you know, as a result of that, and this is, the, this is the really, I think, wonderful thing that we're seeing, Joan, across the state and across the country – is what we're seeing is a group of high school students who have now have attended every school board meeting in Yorkville since that book was banned in that classroom, and they show up and talk about how the book should be reintroduced to the curriculum and how important it is. Wow. You know, I think that's the kind of thing we're seeing there. Uh, you know, we've been involved in other litigation around efforts to bar people from, you know, holding certain kind of events or suggesting that certain kind of events were, were shouldn't be held. You know, so those are the kinds of things that we're seeing even here in Illinois, and, and it just demonstrates how, you know, vigilant we all have to be around those issues. Yeah, one one hundred percent. And, you know, free speech is something that people don't seem to have a real firm grasp of. Not all speech is free speech. You know, there are certain times when it's regulated. But just because you don't like what somebody's saying, that doesn't mean it's uh, it's not free speech. I mean, that's a very... The very definition of defending free speech is defending the kind of uh, speech and arguments that you don't particularly like or the people that you don't particularly like or get under your skin. Um, as you know, long as- I, I always I always love to tell the story. I think, you know, most of us here who have been in, around Chicago for a long time, we point with pride to the fact that Dr. King came here in 1968 and marched in Marquette Park. The case that made sure that he could march there was uh, uh, the, was protecting the speech of this hateful anti-Semitic speaker from the 1930s in Chicago. You know, we 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 have to protect all speech because it is the only way we can be assured and ensured that we protect our own. Yeah. So, Ed, what is um, the ACLU working on or concerned about? Things that we're going to see in 2024. You know, I, I think the thing that we're most concerned about, Joan, and this I think will not surprise you or your listeners, 
is what happens to our our democracy and what happens to basic freedoms. Uh, you know, it is it is a sad thing that too many of our fellow Illinoisans and certainly fellow Americans seem to be willing to support some sort of dictatorship if it gets them what they want yes. on particular kinds of social issues. And I think that we are going to it's going to be an all hands on deck effort to recognize, you know, that that freedom uh, isn't something that you know, can only be protected uh, elsewhere. It's going to have to be protected here. So one of the things we're going to be, you know, concentrating on is really making people understand, you know, the need to look at who's running for political office, what their views are, and to make sure that one goes out and votes their values. And that we're not just doing that at the presidential level, but we're really doing it at all levels of government because, again, the decisions that are made the closest to us might be the ones that impact or affect us the very most. Uh, and so, you know, that's going to be a big part of what we're going to be doing in the year ahead and, and, and what we're going to be sharing with people. And, you know, we're going to go out and engage in this conversation about what freedom actually means. Uh, and, you know, we're not going to be afraid to say it cannot be freedom to say that a group of, of judges who've never practiced a minute of medicine get to tell a woman whether or not she's sick enough to get an abortion. Um, yep. I think that's a debate we're looking forward to having. I think so, too, Mr. Yonka. And I look forward to inviting you onto this radio program over and over again in 2024. 